Hey, my name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here at First Baptist. As you sit down, if you could grab your Bibles, pull them out to Luke chapter 1. Uh, we'll pick that up here in just a minute. Today on our calendar is December 10th. Not to freak some of you out, that means there are 15 days until Christmas. Are you ready? What about this? There are 380 days until Christmas in 2018. Does that not just freak you out or what? So just by a show of hands, how many of you have your Christmas trees up? Christmas trees all decorated, all purdy, right? Okay, with your hands still up, how many of you had them up before Thanksgiving? There's always a few. I always see them. Okay, what about this? How many of you have decorated your outside of your house Christmas lights like you're putting all the movies to shame, okay? How many of you still have your Christmas lights up from last year and you raise your hands? There's always one. There always is. Uh, what about this one? Is we're talking about preparations. Um, how many of you are the go-getters where you have done all of your Christmas shopping? All of your Christmas shopping is done. Raise it. These are all the overachievers. Look around. Of you that just raised your hands, how many of them are all wrapped? All your presents are wrapped under the tree. I can tell you don't have young kids. Because if you did, they would have unwrapped them and wrapped them like five or six different times. Christmas time is busy. Christmas time has all kinds of things going. And the way that our culture celebrates Christmas, it takes a lot of preparation. We can't just show up on the day of Christmas and ready to celebrate. No, there is all kinds of preparations, all kinds of things to prepare the way for celebrating with our family and our friends. And so today, as we work into week two of our Christmas series, Light of the World, we're going to look at an individual who prepared the way for Jesus and whose story just intersects with Jesus throughout the gospel story, and that's John the Baptist. And so this morning, if you have your Bibles, we'll be in Luke chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 5, and so um, if you could read along with me, that'd be great. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of, of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commands and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Let me stop there for just a minute here. Let me give you a little bit of a historical background of, of what's going on in this time. Uh, anybody that was a direct descendant of Aaron automatically became a priest. That meant for all intensive purposes, there are way too many priests. And there are only a few times during the year when all of the priests would gather together to carry out their service activities. Otherwise, throughout the year, they would be on duty, if you will, for one week at a time. But even with so many descendants, there were too many priests to even carry out the duties that the priests were supposed to carry out. And so what they would do is they would cast lots to determine who would get the privilege, who would get the honor of going into the innermost part of the temple to burn incense on behalf of the entire nation of Israel. So it was a pretty big deal as we look at the text here of what happened for Zechariah. Because there are many priests that would go through their entire life never being selected to go into the innermost part of the temple. But on this day, of all days that the Lord would have, this day, Zechariah was chosen by Lot, by rolling of dice, to get to go in to the temple. And so for him, this had to have been one of those highlight moments, the high point of his entire life. 
Look at verse 6 here. It says, And they were both righteous before God. This is describing Elizabeth and Zechariah. It says, And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. I don't know about you, but for me, I can't think of any better way to be described than to be a man who is blameless in the eyes of the Lord, who obeys all the commandments of the Lord. I mean, what an amazing, beautiful statement that is to be described in such a way. But isn't it funny how in 2017, how often we can't say that about others? We're even in the church world, even as Christians, we're so worried about the way we will be perceived or received by other people that we change or we morph to our culture so that they'll receive us rather than looking to what God's standards and expectations are for our lives. And that's where my first idea that I have for you this morning comes, is that private faithfulness results in public righteousness. Private faithfulness results in public righteousness. And what I mean by that is what we do in the secret places, what we do in the areas of our lives where no one else sees what we're thinking or doing, those are the places where our behavior comes out as a result. And what we do in our faithfulness in the outside when nobody else sees also affects how we are perceived by others. But in our society today, private faithfulness is not something that we hear so often. No, more often we hear of people being unfaithful in their private lives. I mean, think about the news just recently. We heard about Matt Lauer, the former anchor of the Today Show. He was the guy that everyone wanted as their next-door neighbor. Um, Women wanted their daughters to marry a man just like Matt Lauer. But then we found out who he was in his private life. And his thought life was absolutely despicable. Even worse were his actions. And as a result of his unfaithfulness in his private life, he has been the public shame and scorn, and now is the poster child for a harasser. See, it's interesting how our private life, how we think, how we act, when no one else sees, affects every aspect of our lives. So let me ask you, friend, what is your private life like? How do you behave in the secret places of your life? What is your thought life like? What do you do on a computer or on your phone when no one else can see the screen? Or what about this? What are you doing on social media in building relationships with someone of the opposite sex that maybe isn't quite as healthy that if someone knew, if someone knew what was going on in here or right here would bring you public shame? What is going on in your private life? Is it demonstrating faithfulness or unfaithfulness? Because as we see this morning, private faithfulness results in public righteousness. Could you be said as Zechariah and Elizabeth were, as someone who is blameless in the eyes of the Lord, who obeys all of the commandments and the teachings of God's word? It's an interesting thought. Convicting, isn't it? Look at what verse 7 says. Verse 7 says, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. See, in Elizabeth and Zechariah's day, to not have a child was something that also brought public shame upon them. In fact, some Jewish rabbis believed that if a couple couldn't have a child, they were worthy of being excommunicated by God. 
If a woman couldn't bear a child, it was grounds for divorce in that day. It was something that brought shame upon Zechariah and Elizabeth. It was something that they dealt with every single day of their lives. And as I think of some of you here today, I'm sure that there's someone here today who also deals with that stress, that struggle of childlessness or infertility. And in no way do I want to pour salt on your wound. In no way do I want to make you feel bad today. Because I can't understand your disappointment or your hurt or your despair. But today I want to speak to you with, with the most sensitivity that I can. To say that even as Zachariah and Elizabeth dealt with, they dealt with that despair, but yet they still had hope that God was working. And so today if you're dealing with childlessness and your heart is to have a child... Can I ask you not to look at the text and not to hear the words that God has given to me to share with you today through the lens of disappointment or despair? But today, rather, can you look at it through the lens of hope, knowing that God still keeps his promises and knowing that God is working, even though you might not be seeing it today in your life, because our God knows that struggle that you're dealing with. So for Zechariah, this day, the day of the high point of his life, the day that he had to have been so excited because he had been chosen to enter the temple courts. This day had to have been a day that was so exciting for him. But yet it was also a day that he was filled with great burden because he was reminded on a day-by-day basis that he had no child and he and his wife were now old or aged out, as he thought. And in the same way as Zechariah walked into those temple courts with a burden, so too do many of us walk into church on Sundays. Now we do a good job of putting on our church clothes, putting on a smile on our face, and acting as though everything is all right. But I know that if I could sit with one of you, and we could have a genuine one-on-one conversation, you would be open enough to say, you know what, Scott, I have a lot of burdens I came in here with stresses and worries, and and I'm not even sure how God's working in my life today. And friend, if that's you today, just as it was like for Zechariah, is God knows those stresses. He knows what you're dealing with. He knows what you're struggling with. And all we have to do is give them over to him, to take that burden off of ourselves and allow God to work. And it's amazing how he does remarkable and amazing things in our hearts and our lives when we trust him. So Zechariah enters the temple courts. He goes in there to carry out his duties. And in verse 10, it talks about how there was a multitude of people on the outside of that innermost court who were out there worshiping and praying. And that's where we pick up the text again in verse 11. Follow along with me if you could. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. And he fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid. Isn't it funny how the angels always have to say that? He says, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you'll have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and of the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. 
Notice a couple things here. Go up just a few verses to verse 15. It says, For he will be great before the Lord, and listen to this, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. Let me stop there for just a moment. This would have been what was described as a, a Nazarite vow. If you've read the story of Samson, you've heard some of the things that Samson had to do as he was set apart by the Lord. And in the same way, John the Baptist was set apart by the Lord, and he had very specific things that Samson was not to partake in because God wanted John the Baptist, I said Samson a minute ago, huh? John the Baptist to be completely different than the culture of the day. And in the same way as I think about that same commandment, what about you? If we're supposed to be set apart, if we're supposed to be different than those that are all around us, why is it that so many Christians look just like those that are non-Christians? And I get that and I walk down this alcohol road, I can get in some very touchy place on some of you. Um, but what about this? Maybe you started just having a beer occasionally and, and, and now where it went from just an occasional drink and fun that has become a daily habit. You don't want to call yourself an alcoholic because alcoholics go to meetings and you don't. Or maybe you're sophisticated. You're one of those sophisticated people where you like to have a glass of wine. And that glass of wine grew to a bottle of wine and now it's three bottles a day. And it owns you. And it's interesting, by the way, that some of you are squirming right now as I bring this up. I know that I'm speaking right between your eyes. And I don't say it in a self-righteous way. I say it in such a way that if John the Baptist was set apart from birth, if John the Baptist was set apart to look different than other people, to prepare the way for Jesus, God knew that those things would dampen his witness. God knew that those things would keep him from fully carrying out what God had set him apart to do. So let me ask you, are those things affecting your witness? Are those things keeping you from fully carrying out God's purpose in your life? As a result of alcohol, drugs, I don't know what it is for you, but whatever it is that is pulling you away from God, is it keeping you from carrying out God's best for your life? Look at the second part of verse 15. It says, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. See, right, that right there is so contrary to what anybody knew at that time. This actually gives us an indication of what was to come on Pentecost when the Holy Spirit would come and dwell in the midst of all of us as Christ followers. But at this time, that was so different. But yet it's so important for us not to miss. Because the Holy Spirit was dwelling with inside John the Baptist, it also gives us an indication of who was leading him. It wasn't man's flesh. It wasn't just John the Baptist saying, I'm going to go out and eat locusts and wild honey and prepare the way for Jesus. No, it was the Holy Spirit leading him to carry out a purpose that was solely his. And that was to prepare people's hearts and lives for the coming Messiah. It's interesting that as we look at verse 16, um, we get a great picture of the plan and purpose for John's life. And it's the next point that I have on your outline this morning, which is each of us has purpose for our lives. Look at what it says in verse 16. It says, He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before them in power, in, the, in spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of fathers to children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Later in chapter 1, we see a beautiful vision that the Lord gives Zechariah, even further giving him clarity as to what his son's purpose would be for his life. 
The other day, I was on the campus of the University of the Pacific, and, and as I was walking to go meet a friend there, everywhere you go on the campus, there are these signs that says, what is your purpose? And I think it's such a profound question. First of all, if you're on the campus of a university, you're wrestling, what is my purpose? Why am I spending all of this money to gain a skill set in this life? And as you go further on the campus, you see pictures of people talking about their career. And don't get me wrong, no way am I saying that your purpose is not your career, but what I am saying is that our purpose is way greater than our careers. Because God has given every single one of us unique skill sets. You can be an accountant, you could be a teacher, you could be a nurse. Amazing gifts to be able to use for his glory. But our purpose is not our career. Our purpose is quite simple. Our purpose is much like John the Baptist's purpose, to prepare the way for Jesus in other people's hearts and lives. And in a group this size, there's somebody who just thought, no, that's not my purpose, that's your purpose. You're the pastor. You're the one that we pay, pay to stand up and talk about this. We're the one that we pay to go out and introduce people to Jesus. That's your job. And you know what? I can speak to you with all the sincerity of the world to say you are absolutely correct and you are so wrong. Because it is my privilege and honor and a part of my call into ministry to introduce people to Jesus. To set a mood, to, to help talk and share and, and help people to understand God's truths. But it's also your role as well. See, because here's what I know. Although we're a large church and lots of people come here on Sundays, there are so many more that are driving down El Dorado right now who will never walk through these doors. And although God has given me the privilege at times to have a platform like this to share his word, God's given you a platform in those people's lives. God has given you a platform to speak his truth into the lives of those closest to you. And I think that old saying is so true and poignant right now. The greatest sermon that someone will ever hear is your life. It's your testimony. It's the way that you live in those faithful private times that is a testimony and the greatest sermon that someone will ever hear. See, here's the thing. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that just pastors are to go and share the good news. No, we are all called to it. The Great Commission, a verse that if you've gone to church for any time, you've heard this many times. It says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Do you notice that it doesn't say pastors go and make disciples? No, it's everyone. And in, during a time such as this, when we look at our calendar year, there is no greater time, and there is no time where people are more receptive than this time to hear the good news, to hear about the saving grace of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's why we give you one of these, these invite cards. They're just a tool. We don't just like to cut down trees. We want to give you tools to help you to carry out your purpose. Now, this is the simple way of inviting someone to church or to a concert. But bigger than that, our job is not just to invite them to church, but to share God's story of how he came into our hearts and he transformed us from the inside out. So if the greatest sermon that anyone has ever heard is your life, maybe this Christmas season, God's calling you not just to invite, but at Christmas dinner, to open up his love letter to you and to me, 
and to share how this word, how this story has changed your life and how it will change their life. Yeah, you know what? It might be a little bit uncomfortable with a few of your relatives, but I don't know about you, but I'd rather be uncomfortable now knowing where they'll be later rather than being comfortable now and knowing how they'll end up later. See, here's the thing. When I talk about inviting, that makes us uncomfortable because my next idea that I have for you this morning is doubt can impact our lives in dramatic ways. Doubt impacts our lives in dramatic ways. Pick up the text again in verse 18 and listen to how it goes. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day of these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. Unlike Mary, when the angel appeared to her, she took the angel at his word. Zechariah immediately started to question the angel. In his mind, he's saying, but I'm old, she's old. We're way past baby-making years. How is this going to happen? And it's interesting for me as I put myself there, how I have such a questioning. I'm like, Zechariah, why? How do you not get it when an angel of the Lord is right there in front of you? Why do you doubt? But yet when we've struggled, when we've stressed, when we've questioned why for so long, it's really hard sometimes to really experience or, or soak in the truth that is being presented to us. See, doubt shows itself in our lives in so many different ways. For Zechariah, his doubt had severe consequences. As a result of his doubt, he was mute. When he came out of the temple courts, he wasn't able to share that an angel of the Lord had appeared to him. And as a result of his doubt, not only did it cost him to be able to share even with his wife, you're going to have a baby. He couldn't tell her. He couldn't tell any of the people that were there that day. So his doubt cost him, and it cost all those that were there that day. And in the same way, when I think about my life and I think about your life, how often does our doubt cost us? Maybe you're around a, a close friend or, or a family member and they don't know who Jesus is. And, and instead of telling them the full story, you only tell them the watered-down version that leaves the Jesus part out, just, oh, my life has been changed. And so because you doubt or you're worried about the way you're going to be perceived, you hold back and you don't share. Or maybe you've been shopping, and if you're standing there in the checkout line forever because it's Christmas time, as the Holy Spirit stirs and nudges in only a way that the Holy Spirit does and tells you, talk to that person. Invite them to church. Tell them about the real meaning behind Christmas. And instead of having that conversation, you pull out your phone so you can be distracted and not have to hear the still, soft voice of God. Because you doubt. Because in our doubting, it costs us. It costs us the blessing of being a blessing in someone else's life. 
And it costs us from being the one that God uses to plant seeds in other people's lives. Or just maybe it costs you the privilege to be able to introduce someone that you so dearly love to Jesus Christ because you stayed in that comfortable existence and you didn't want to be known. See, when I think about the story of God, when I think about God's plan and purpose, I know that even when we doubt, our God will still work. I know that his plans are far greater than my plans. I can't even understand all that God does. But I know this. I know that when we doubt, we miss out on the blessing of being used by God. Yeah, he'll work in someone else's life, but he won't use you and he won't use me. Look at verse 23. It says this. It says, And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. This is Zechariah. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me, to take away my reproach among people. The things went exactly the way that God said they would. Elizabeth, who was barren, was now with a child. And as we see in the story, she was pregnant with a purpose. Jump down to verse 39, where we see the next idea that I have for you this morning, which is that our joy is to be contagious. See, this is the first time in verse 39 of many times where we see the story of John the Baptist and the story of Jesus collide in a beautiful fashion. And setting up this hone here, what happens is the angel of the Lord, angel Gabriel, had appeared to Mary, told her that she was going to be with child, and told her that her cousin Elizabeth also with with child. And so that's where we pick up where we see what Mary does in verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went in haste to the hill country, to a town in Judea. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Let me stop right there for just a second. That is one of my favorite parts of the entire Christmas story is when Mary is in the presence of Elizabeth and John the Baptist, who is being knit together in Elizabeth's womb, experiences the presence of Jesus, and he leaps for joy in the presence of Jesus. It's absolutely amazing to think about that the fact that Jesus' presence is so contagious. In fact, we read in different places in the Bible, when Jesus appeared to Andrew and to James and to John, They dropped their nets at the presence of Jesus and followed after him joyfully. This last Thanksgiving, uh, my wife sent me right before Thanksgiving to the grocery store, the favorite job right at that busy time, right? And so as I was going through, I had my list of things to grab. I had one last thing to grab. It was in the produce department. I don't remember what it was that I had to get because I don't think I got it. Here's why. It's because I went into the produce section and it was packed, right? Everyone has their cards. It's bumper to bumper in the produce section. And uh, as I was going over to get that item, there's this lady over there, and she is hacking up a lung. She is coughing. She is loud. And I look at her cart, and she has a box of tissue in the front little part. You know, the little baby carrier? That's her tissue carrier. And as I listen to her and I see her, she just sounded and looked terrible. The last thing that I wanted to do was go over near that lady because whatever she had was contagious and I didn't want to get it. But in the same way that I think about that lady, I think about you and I think about me. Every one of us is contagious. Maybe not in our sickness, 
but in our attitudes and in our actions. We are all contagious, and we either can be contagious in our joy, or we can be contagious in our joy sucking. And what I mean by that is that we can be people that are so joy-filled by the Spirit of God that when we're around other people, they're excited to be around us. They love it, and they just want to hear more about what God is doing in our hearts and our lives. Or we can be those other people, as I call the joy suckers, people that I want to be around just about as much as that lady in the grocery store. So what about you? Are you contagious in a good or a bad way? Are you a joy sucker or are you a joy giver? Has the joy of Christmas been sucked out of your heart as a result of all that you think you need to do to prepare? Has the joy of the Lord been dampened in your heart and your life because of your choices and the choices of others around you? Or have you chosen? Or have you chosen to be filled by the love and the joy of Jesus Christ by spending time in his word and allowing him to transform you from the inside out so that your joy that only comes from him can be contagious? See, as followers of Jesus Christ, our joy should be contagious. And in no way am I standing before you today and saying, fake it until you make it. No. What I'm saying to you with the most genuine heart possible is that as followers of Jesus Christ, people should know that we are Christ followers by our joy. Look at what it says right there, um, continuing in our passage. It says in verse 41, second part, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Any former Catholics, you might might remember that from the Hail Mary. Verse 43. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Leaped for joy. Let me take you one other angle on this joy part. My wife and I have four children. Love them to death. And when my wife was pregnant, um, anytime she would talk about the baby moving within her, I always wanted to know what it felt like. I know that sounds kind of weird as men because, you know, men, if we were to have babies, um, the human race would have died off years ago, right? (laughs) I mean, I wasn't saying that I wanted to know her back pain or weight gain or hormones and all that that went on. No, the part I wanted to know and experience was what it felt like to have a little baby Leap for joy. To feel a baby boxing in the belly, kicking, and to know that experience. And that same longing that I had as a dad to want to know what a mom feels like is the same longing that we need to have of allowing that joy that is deep within us, leaping out of us, to be shared with others. My next point that I have with you for you this morning is that God always does what he says he will do. God always does what he says he will do. And I truly believe that there is someone that is in this room right now that needs to hear that. Beyond everything else that I've shared this morning, that one thought that our God is a promise keeper, not a promise breaker. Maybe in this Christmas season, you've been praying, you've been seeking, you've been crying out to God, and you've been looking for him to work in your life. And you've been hurt by so many people that you have a hard time believing that the God that created the heavens and the earth 
won't let you down like everyone else. Can I tell you as your friend that our God will do, always does, what he says he will do. He is a promise keeper above all else. Skip down to verse 57 and look at how our God keeps his promise and keeps his word. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her. And they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, verse 60. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosened and he spoke, blessing God. See, our God is a promise keeper. He did exactly what the angel Gabriel said he would do. And as a result of God keeping his promises, Zechariah and Elizabeth did what they were expected as well in the naming of their child. See, when the time of the birth of a child in this day was to happen, what would happen is the neighbors and the friends would gather around the house. Local musicians would come as well. And what would happen is is that when the news of the child in particular, if it was a boy, was shared, the musicians would jump into loud praise. Everyone would celebrate and be filled with great joy. But they would wait until the eighth day, the day of circumcision, to give the child a name. And in this day, just as much in, this, in our day, but even more then, the name of someone was highly significant. At times, the name was, was, goes with the, the way the birth happened, thinking of Esau or Jacob. Other times, the name was a, more of a description of who the child was. Think maybe of Laban. Other times, it was just demonstrating the parent's faithfulness, even in a time when others were being unfaithful. Think of Elijah. But in this day and in this time, God very clearly had told Zechariah and Elizabeth the name that they were going to be. And see, you have to understand that if, if the name wasn't anything else, they would go after the patriarch, the dad of the family. And so when they all just assumed, hey, it's Zechariah Jr. But yet Elizabeth said, no, his name is John. And John being a shortened version of Jehoahan, which means Yahweh provides. God always provides, was so significant that God is gracious. And it was the name that the angel Gabriel gave, and it was the name that both Zechariah and Elizabeth confirmed in that moment. So here's what we have to get. The whole theme of all that God has given me to share with you today is this, is that the entire life of John the Baptist was very specific, to prepare the way for Jesus. And it started in the very baby stages of the story, intertwining with Jesus, and it would over and over and over again as John prepared the way for Jesus. So my last thought that I have for you this morning is how are you preparing the way for the light of the world? Last week, Pastor Brad shared out of John chapter 1, a, a great verse in, in, in describing who the light of the world was being Jesus. But listen to what it says in John chapter 1, verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming in to the world. John the Baptist came to prepare the way for Jesus. 
He had a very clear purpose of getting everyone ready to receive the Messiah. And that same purpose that John the Baptist has is the same purpose that you and I have as well. So this morning as we think about the Christmas season, who has God called you to prepare the way and in their lives? Who has God called you to impact today? So your impact will only happen by private faithfulness that results in public righteousness. The impact will only happen by understanding that your purpose is to prepare the way for others to know Jesus. That impact will only happen as you allow Jesus to fill you with contagious joy that gets all over the place on all kinds of people as you prepare the way for Jesus. But last but not least is to not allow your doubt to keep you from being used by him. Will you join me in prayer? Father, I thank you for a beautiful season, a season on our calendar where we get to mark the birth of our Savior. But God, even bigger than the birth of our Savior, his life His death, his resurrection is so important for every one of us. And for so many that are here today, God, we are changed as a result of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I thank you for the way that you have planted contagious joy deep within us. But yet, God, I thank you that you've called us not just to keep that joy to ourselves, but to be contagious with all those that we are around. And so, Father, today, in this Christmas season, I pray that, God, you will nudge us. I pray that, God, you will make us uncomfortable. First of all, in some of our own choices. And that, God, as as you help us to change from the inside out in our thought life or in our actions, that, God, as we go to prepare the way for others, that we can be seen righteous in their eyes, blameless. And that, God, we can be an amazing witness, an amazing testimony of your faithfulness. God, as we prepare the way for others, be it planting a seed, be be it inviting, or be it sharing and leading them to knowing you. And so, Father, I don't know what each person's next step is, but I do know that we do have a next step. And so, Father, even now as we worship you, even as we go about our lives, will you stir within us what that next step will be as we carry out the purpose for our lives to prepare the way for the Messiah in 2017 and going into 2018. We love you in the name of Jesus, we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Amen.